grab a seat, grab a Bible, and get it open to Luke chapter 24. I'm going to ask you for some grace here this morning. Um, I'm getting started about eight minutes late. Do you want me to cut eight minutes off of this amazing sermon, or do you want to get out of church eight minutes late? You want to be late? All right, you got nothing else to do today, and Jesus is alive. Let's talk about that. Do you believe that Jesus is alive? Okay, now, in saying that you believe that, do you understand that what you're saying is you believe something that is unbelievable? Have you ever heard somebody talk about church, talk about Jesus, talk about the Bible, and say, man, this is so unbelievable? It's like, that's not a great thing, because you're supposed to believe that it really is the way it has been recorded. So how does the unbelievable go from being undeniable. We're going to talk about that here this morning. Now, the passage we're about to read takes place post-resurrection. If you've been with us for the past few Sundays, we've focused on the cross and what happened on the cross, the brutal murder of the Son of God. Jesus was killed not just at the hands of the Romans, not just at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders, but by the very hands of God. And as God the Son absorbed the wrath of God the Father. He made the payment. He paid the penalty to satisfy the wrath of God for all who will believe. And so it is essential that the unbelievable becomes undeniable in every individual heart. Now, post-resurrection, there was some conversation around this unbelievable event of the resurrection. Jesus didn't stay dead. He was placed in the tomb. Three days later, God rolled the stone away, not so that Jesus could get out, but so that the witnesses could get in to find out that Jesus had been raised. And so we're about to um, eavesdrop on a conversation that a couple of disciples were having after the resurrection. Now, what we're about to read is what I would describe as the original discipleship pathway. Have you been paying attention over the course of the last year? We've been talking about the discipleship pathway. If you claim to be a disciple of Christ, then what you're saying is, I follow Christ. That means I walk in the steps of Christ. I continually take a step moving in the direction of Jesus, following Jesus. What we're about to read about is a literal pathway, a seven-mile pathway from the tomb back to home. And we're going to eavesdrop on these two disciples. Let's pick up the story here in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. I'm just going to read for a while, follow along. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. Everybody say Emmaus. That was their home. It was about seven miles from Jerusalem. So some of you drove seven miles from home to church today. Some of you will drive seven miles back. We've already established. If you were to walk from here to Redemption City Church, that'd be about a five-mile walk. If you walked from here to Notre Dame Stadium, it's about a three-mile walk, so round trip, six miles. You get an understanding of how far this journey was. Now remember, they weren't driving in minivans, and so it would take a It would take several hours probably to walk that far, which created room for talking. Verse 14, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. What were these things? 
these things that had happened in Jerusalem, on the cross, in the tomb, and surrounding the events of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were talking about these things that had happened. Verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Notice, Jesus shows up where two friends are talking about him. That's good news for people today. Verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? What are y'all talking about? And they stood still and sad. Jesus' question stopped them in their tracks. They stopped walking, and they looked sad. The reason they looked sad is because they still didn't believe Jesus was alive. It was still unbelievable that Jesus had been raised from the dead. That'll make a person sad. Verse 18, and then one of them named Cleopas answered him. Interestingly, only one of the two disciples is named. It's the only time we see the name Cleopas in the Bible. We hadn't seen him in earlier depictions of the disciples. He's not one of the 12 disciples. He was a part of the larger gathering. One of them is named. The other one is unnamed. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you willing to follow Jesus only if you can have a name? Would you be content just to be a nameless disciple? I mean, how many of you would be a little more motivated if you knew that your service and your sacrifices in following Jesus would actually get you a name that landed you in the Bible? How many of you would be a little more motivated that for thousands of years people would read about how awesome you are as a disciple? That was Cleopas. But then there's this other guy. We have no idea who he was. We don't even know if he was a he. He might have been a she. Could have been Cleopas' wife. We don't know. It's just an unnamed disciple. Good question for us. Are you willing to serve Jesus even if you are unrecognized? Even if your accomplishments are never recorded? Just to be a nameless disciple who is known only to God, but your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. We don't know who the other disciple was. Verse 18, Cleopas answered him. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? Does it, am I the only one that finds that humorous? Like, Jesus, do you not know about Jesus? Like, maybe you're a first-time visitor to Jerusalem here, and you haven't been paying attention. Do you not know the good news or the bad news? We're not quite sure if it's good or bad yet because we don't know if he's alive. And so now this guy has to go on in a, like an information journey with Jesus to let him know the things. And Jesus plays along. It's almost hilarious. Tell me about what you know. Tell me about what's going on. I haven't been paying attention. I've been watching the news. So verse 19 says, he said to him, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Let me tell you about this guy. Here's his resume. He was a man who was a, was a, a prophet Mighty indeed and in word before God and all the people. Now let me tell you what happened. Our chief priests and our rulers delivered him up 
to be condemned to death and crucified him. You've heard about crucifixion, right? How they drive the nails through the hands and crown and, and it's just bloody. It was such a bloody mess. Verse 21. But we had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, when they said that, what they were saying is, we were hoping he would be a political leader. We, would hope, we were hoping he would win the election, that he would get in office and he would defeat the enemies and kick out the Roman government. We had hoped he would redeem us politically so that our lives would be easier. So that we could have more power. You know, the Israelite people that were promised this land and we've been uh, invaded by this occupying, you know, group and we've just kind of been living as exiles here. And we were hoping that Jesus would make it all right. We had hoped, but they no longer hoped. It says, yes, besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Apparently, they were aware that Jesus promised that there was going to be something happen on the third day. This was the third day. And it's almost as if they're turning to Jesus and saying, so, you know, it's like time's running out. It's the third day. The day's almost over with. And Jesus said he would show up. We haven't seen him. Have you seen him? Seen anybody look like Jesus? Because he, he said it would, we would see him on the third day. The day's running out of time. Verse 22, moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. And they were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they, but him, they did not see. First step on the discipleship pathway, this original discipleship pathway, is just simply that friends talk. If, if you want to see Jesus, you might want to find a friend and talk about these things. Now, interestingly, as they were talking about Jesus, they were having a face-to-face -face meeting with Jesus, and they didn't recognize him because Jesus had chosen not yet to open their eyes. Do you understand that without the grace of God opening our eyes, we will not recognize Jesus no matter how familiar we are with these things? They didn't recognize him. It's one of my greatest fears as a pastor that people would cycle into our church and open their Bibles and flood their minds with Bible information and be very familiar with these things, but not know how these things personally transforms our lives. It's not enough just to know about these things. We must know Jesus, and He must open our eyes to see Him for who He really is. You know, it says that we had hoped that he was, and they begin to refer to him in a past tense. He was. That was their first mistake. Really never should a disciple refer to Jesus in the past tense. Not he was. Because remember, he gave himself a title, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus is, not was. Jesus is and was 
and is to come. As God, he is eternal. And it says here that Cleopas and this other disciple began these conversations around Jesus. Let me tell you some things about a gospel conversation. When friends talk about Jesus, gospel friendship creates room for honest questions. Now, everybody in this room is at some step along the pathway, and I don't know about you, but I've, I've learned that it takes time to develop friendship. And we don't know if this was the first time that these guys had talked. I kind of imagine that this was not the first time that they had talked as they probably came on this seven-mile journey together to Jerusalem, and now we're returning on a seven-mile journey back. Something happens when friends take time to walk together and talk together about the most important things. It creates a level of transparency and vulnerability and safety where you can actually express your doubts about these things. These things seem unbelievable. Pulling a friend alongside of you and say, would you help me process these things? Let's talk about these things concerning Jesus. Now listen, your friends are so important. Who you walk with and who you talk with will determine the direction of your life. Can I ask you a question? Who have you been walking with? Who have you been talking with? What have you been talking about? Has it been these things? Or has it been trivial things? Like presidential politics. And pandemics. And college football. Listen, when you talk about the right things... It shapes you to live as a citizen of heaven. All of those things that we just mentioned as trivial are very important as a citizen of earth. We, we need to talk about those things. But as a citizen of heaven, what we talk about transcends the things here on earth. And so these friends were talking about the right things. There are some people in this room that need to stop walking with friends who are not talking about the most important things. Sorry, we can't be friends anymore. Why? Because we're not headed in the right direction. I'm on this discipleship journey following Jesus. I really want to talk with Jesus, and I would really like to talk with you about Jesus, but if you don't want to talk about Jesus, it's going to be really hard for us to be friends because the most important things are the things about Jesus. That's what these guys were talking about. Gospel friendship is essential for discipleship. We've said this so often. I want to emphasize it again. Social distancing and the moment that we are living in, in 2020, can be fatal to your discipleship. Social distancing cannot be allowed to drift into social isolation. We have to do community together. And that's why we emphasize small groups around here. Are you in a small group community at our church? If you're not, we would love to open the door and we can make it happen for you. If you're not in a small group, I guarantee you, your discipleship journey will not go as far as it needs to go. And then even if you are in a discipleship, in a discipleship group, even if you are in a small group, we want to encourage you to be in groups that are smaller than small groups. 
to have one friend or two friends where you get to a level of transparency and honesty and vulnerability, where you're reading scripture together, where you're praying together, where you're encouraging one another, and at times rebuking one another if you're not talking about the right things. That's what these two guys model for us on this discipleship pathway. Let me show you how dangerous it is to be socially isolated. Proverbs chapter 18, verses 1 and 2 says this, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. Now think about what that's saying. If you refuse to be in community, if you wall yourself off from every other person that would like to have a deep gospel conversation with you, it's because you are only concerned about yourself. You desire your own opinion it goes on it says he breaks out another translation said he rages he rages or breaks out against all sound judgment that's another person trying to give him a perspective he rages against that and then it says a fool takes no pleasure in understanding he's not interested in listening so he can understand he's only interested in expressing his opinion That is the outcome of a life that is socially isolated. And so community and discipleship happens when we walk together. Gospel friendship, here's the best part. Gospel friendship invites the presence of Jesus. Did you see it here? As these two were walking and talking about these things, Jesus showed up. He didn't show up because they were talking about politics. He didn't show up because they were talking about football. He didn't show up because they were talking about health care. He showed up because they were talking about him. If you want Jesus to show up in a personal way, pick a friend, open the Bible, and talk about these things. It's a great model for discipleship. I remember when I was in college. I'm, first of all, I'm an only child, so I'm a, I'm a recovering, socially isolated person, okay? So um, I, I, I get along great with myself. I've never had an argument with myself. I really like being by myself a lot, but, but I, I realized if I was going to grow as a Christian, I was going to need other people that were further along than I was, and I remember as a 19-year-old, I was just feeling lonely and isolated and had questions and doubts and fears and and there was, there was this guy in my church that, that actually he had, he had become a Christian later than I had. We'd actually prayed for him because he was a drunk and I was dating his sister. And we'd pray for him and, and uh, broke up with her. But I became best friends with him because I went to him one night. I remember it was a Sunday night after church. I was feeling sad. I was feeling isolated. And I walked up to him. And I was like, Ray, I need a friend. And you know what? His heart opened to me, and we formed a bond. That was 30 years ago. And I still consider Ray my lifelong best friend. And and I only get to see him like once a year, but every time we get back together, it's like we pick up that ball and we start talking about these things. And what's God doing in your life? And how can I pray for you? And I'm discouraged about this. And let me encourage you about that. Do you have a friend like that? Maybe some of you need to do the thing that I did. Drop your guard. Humble yourself, go to somebody that may be in, on, moving the same direction, maybe on the same pace, maybe hopefully a little bit further ahead of you, and you could just go and it's like, hey, I need a friend. I need, a go- I need to have gospel conversation. 
conversations I'm in all day long, every day, they're not healthy. They're not helping me. Matter of fact, we're not even going on the right path. And there are some people here that need to pull somebody in because you are a little further ahead and you need to become a leader and a mentor. As a matter of fact, did you see all those mentors and spiritually mature people on the platform here that are no longer going to be a part of our church? They're going to leave a leadership gap. Some of you need to step up and fill that gap. Lead a small group. Initiate a gospel conversation. Initiate a friendship with somebody so that you can walk together on this discipleship path. Something happens. The unbelievable becomes undeniable, first of all, when friends talk. Secondly, the unbelievable becomes undeniable when scriptures speak. Look here at verse 25. And Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart. Underline that, slow of heart. You understand their problem was not in the mind. Their problem was in the heart. There was something broken in the heart. There was something off, fallen, depraved, (laughs) sinful about their hearts. Jesus said, you're foolish because you have a slow heart to believe. All the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, and this is what he did. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus gave them a class in Old Testament theology, beginning with Moses. Now, now I do this right now. If you, if you Hold your Bibles up, Bible check in church. Let me see your Bibles, let me see your Bibles, let me see your Bibles. That's cool. Some of you are holding up technology. I, I can get away with that for a while. Um, but uh, it'd be great to get an open Bible because you can't do with technology what I'm about to ask you to do. Open up to the table of contents, please. Everybody do that? Do that? Mine looks like that. You see, find a table of contents. See that? Notice in your Bible, there's kind of two sections. First section, we call it the Old Testament. Another word for testament is covenant, an agreement between God and man. The second part is the New Testament. The New Testament begins with the biographies of Jesus. We've been studying Luke. You see Luke there is the third book in the New Testament. Now, I want you to notice, do you notice that there are more books in the Old Testament than the New Testament? You see that? If you were to actually slice it up, about 75% of your Bible is Old Testament. You know what Jesus did to these guys? He said, open your Bibles. Now, unlike us, they didn't have the privilege of carrying around these nicely leather-bound copies of the Bible. They had... They had most of this committed to memory. It was stories. It was narrative. And most of the world back in those days was illiterate, so they had to know the stories by heart, and they were taught them from childhood. And Jesus, beginning with Moses. Now, do you see the first five books of your Old Testament there? You see that? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are what we call the books of Moses. The Torah 
where the law was given. And, of course, it's all about creation, and it defines for us uh, the, the heart of God, the heart of man, and the, the fall, all those different things. Jesus began there, and then it said he went over to the prophets. Now, do you see down later on, you got, you got uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and, and so on, so on, so on. Those are the prophets. Jesus walked through the Old Testament and interpreted those books with a Christ-centered or gospel-centered hermeneutic. If you want to impress your friends, you can use the word hermeneutic. What it means is the lens through which he read those stories was as if Christ was the point, which is the, it's the only way we should read our Bibles. Do you understand the Bible is not a collection of wisdom to help you get your finances right? The Bible is not a book about advice on how to have a great marriage and raise kids. The Bible is not like a Ouija board where you're looking like, who am I going to marry and what job should I take? And That's not the way we read the Bible. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is about Jesus. Now, the Bible was written for you, but the Bible was not written about you. The Bible was written about Jesus. And so in order for these guys to understand the resurrection, in order for them to go from unbelievable to undeniable, they had to understand what the Old Testament was all about. And remember, at this point in history, the only Bible they had was the Old Testament. And Jesus said, it's all about me. It's all a preview of what I'm going to do. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So when you are reading a story in the Bible, you are always on every page reading a story about Jesus. The Bible is the unfolding story of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And it begins on the first page. Genesis, first book in the Bible, third chapter, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is the first proclamation of the gospel. On the third page of your Bible, this is what it says. This is God speaking. He's actually speaking to the serpent that just tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. God is pronouncing a judgment on Satan. This is what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, that was Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring, your family and her family. So he's talking about two families, the, the spiritual enemies of God, the devil and his demonic works are going to have war between uh, them and humanity, her offspring, her family. We're all her offspring. Eve, you realize that? That's our great-great-great-great-grandmother, right? So Eve and her family are going to be at war with the devil and his family. And this is what the prophecy is. He shall bruise your heel, the offspring of the woman... Is going, to, is going to bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. Now that seems a little cryptic there. It's very simple to understand. Satan is presented in the Garden of Eden as a serpent, as a snake. Now how many of you have ever had the unfortunate event, like I have, of walking along a trail and there being a snake right in front of you. Have you ever had that encounter? I mean, in January, Andrea and I were in Florida. We were walking on a trail, and she was about to take her next step, and halfway between, there was a snake right where she was about to put her foot, and she jumped in my arms, and I rescued her from the deadly viper that was about to kill. It didn't all go out like that. We actually both screamed and run away. That's actually what happened, right? Why is that true? Why is there something in our heart that hates snakes? Because God said he would put enmity between the woman and the snake and give her a husband to redeem her. That's what, that's not all the way it goes. But put that verse back up. I want you to see what it says here. It says that God will, that, that the offspring of the woman will bruise the head of this snake. So a courageous man would do what with said snake? Right there, I'm just going to put my heel right on the head of that snake. And in the process, it might actually bite my heel. But my blow to the snake is going to be deadly to said snake. His blow to my heel is going to leave a temporary wound, a bruise. You know what a bruise is? It's when blood builds up, blood. There's going to be an issue of blood here. All of this is on the third page of our Bible. What is the Old Testament telling us? That one day there will be a virgin who will give birth to a child who is the God-man and that God-man Jesus one day on the cross, his heel would be bruised by Satan. It would leave a temporary wound and yet in the process of being wounded, he would crush the power of sin and Satan. That's the gospel. And in order to be a Christian, you must believe that Jesus has conquered sin and Satan on your behalf, even though it caused him to be wounded in the process. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. Every story. The ark is not a nice story. Some of you, you have children, you put the ark story like on the walls and stuff. It's like two by two animals. It's a horrible story. God is bringing judgment on the world because the heart of man was con only continually evil. And yet, because of the grace of God, he built an ark and saved eight people in his mercy and his grace. And all of us are here today because God chose for the Bible not to end in the sixth chapter of Genesis. By grace, do you understand the picture of the ark is the picture of the cross? that through wood, God would redeem the world? David and Goliath, we read the story like, okay, kids, you're going back to school. I'm, you're really going to have to conquer the enemies out there. Your enemies are algebra. Your enemies are the bully at school. But you know what? We're going to pack these five smooth, smooth stones in your backpack. We'll give you five scriptures. And, you know, when those enemies, you just pull those out, and you can be victorious over your enemies because you're a champion like David. Wrong. That's not the way we read our Bibles. The, we read our Bibles, we read the Old Testament story of David like this. I'm not David. I'm the cowering king on the hill who's afraid of the enemy. I'm about to be overrun by the Philistines, and this giant represents sin. 
that I could never conquer. He's undefeatable until there is a substitute representative warrior that comes and does battle and kills him on my behalf. That's the way we read the story of David and Goliath. It's the way Jesus interprets the Bible. How have you been interpreting your Bible? Have you given up on reading the stories in the Old Testament because they're so familiar, they're Bible stories from vacation Bible school, and they're just boring to you? If that's the way you're reading the Bible, you're not reading it right. Friends talk, scriptures speak. Understand, every Bible story is telling my story. There are four movements in the Old Testament. Put, those, put that slide back up here. Here's the four movements. You have to read it like this. Every story is like this. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. That's, sometimes you find all four of those movements in a verse, like the one that we showed you, Genesis chapter 3. Sometimes it's just like the whole book is about the fall. I mean, if you try to read through Lamentations, you're just not going to see a whole lot of redemption there. But it's setting you up for what's to come. You get to the last few pages of the Old Testament, and you're like, I don't want to read anymore. I'm so depressed. And that sets you up for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus shows up as this king of a kingdom. And there's going to be a recreation at the end of what was created in the beginning, a perfect paradise where man walked with God in the cool of the day. There was nothing to separate them. That's the way that we read the Bible. So friends talk, scriptures open. I want to I prepare you for something that's coming, okay? I know that many of you have read through the Bible. Some of you have a, a habit where you just read through the Bible every year. I typically don't do that because you see the way I preach. I, I, I read the Bible the way I preach. It's like I can spend a whole week on a verse. I just like to marinate it and then sit in it. And, and th that's a great way to read the Bible. But recently, some of you heard that I read through the Bible in 61 days. I was challenged by my college son along with 100 of his buddies that were doing this at college when COVID hit and everybody was sent home. And they're like, what are we going to do? Let's read our Bible. Let's read the whole Bible in two months. And so we did that together. It was so fundamentally life-altering for me, I'm going to challenge us as a church to do something very similar. Now, I'm going to give you the benefit. I'm going to give you a little more time. We're going to do it together in 100 days. We're going to pick the last 100 days of 2020. How many of you are looking forward to the last 100 days of 2020? Anybody ready for that to happen? What if, what, how would it change your mindset if you spent the last 100 days saturating your mind with Scripture? It's like, I just don't think I have time to do that. No, you don't. As if you're posting on Facebook and reading all this junk on there and you're watching news and, and saturating your mind with everything else, but what if you were to substitute all of that with Scripture? Do you think that might change the way that you view the news? I believe it would. So that's coming. We're going to give you more instructions. We're going to help you through it. We're going to do it together. No shame if you don't want to do that, but I want to invite you to, to come into this with us. We're going to read Scripture through the lens of the Gospel, even the Old Testament. We're going to read it quickly. We're going to get the whole narrative. Now, you don't have time to, like, marinate on every verse and memorize it a lot. We're just going to get the whole narrative 
Instructions coming soon. You're going to need a Bible, and we're going to give you a guide to help you through that. Third point is eyes that see. Friends talk, Scripture speaks, eyes see. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. What was the name of that, by the way? Just so that I know you're paying attention. They drew near to home. They got close to home. And notice this. This is awesome. Jesus acted. Jesus acted at one point. He acted as if he were going further. He pretended. He's like, hey, guys, been good talking with you. Great conversation. I'm just, just going, going this way. Just, I'm just going to take my next step. I'm leaving. Unless you stop me. I'm leaving. He acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. So he went in and stayed with them, which was his intention all along. Verse 30, and he was at table with them. What happens at the table? What happens when you bring your family to the table? You just eat. No, you keep talking, right? Some of the most significant conversations of the day. Maybe the only significant conversations of the day. I don't know about your family. Our family's kind of busy. I don't know about your family. Our family has a teenager. But we know she has to eat. We put food on the table. Guess what happens? She shows up. And it's our time to investigate. It's our time to download information. It's the time to talk gospel to talk about these things i would encourage you to try it um turn the tv off put the cell phones away and to actually come to table so you can talk and notice what jesus did he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them what does that sound like to you had jesus done that earlier in the week yeah, just a couple of days earlier, he had done that at the Passover, which we call the Last Supper. And do you remember what he said when he broke the bread? He said, guys, this is my body, which is broken for you. And so when Jesus pulls out that bread, and he takes it and holds it in front of their face, hey, hey Cleopas, and whatever your name is, watch this. Does that remind you of anything? Verse 31, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Why did he vanish? That's kind of disappointing, right? Like they just recognized who he is, and he left. Why did he leave? They didn't need to see him with physical eyes anymore. Because their eyes were opened, they could see him on every page of their Bible. The vast majority of disciples will never have physical eyes to see Jesus. There were only a few hundred who ever physically had eyes on Jesus. But there have been billions of disciples who have had eyes to see Jesus in the Bible. He vanished, 
but we see him on the pages of Scripture. It's still the way that God opens blind eyes. Only God can open blind eyes. Intellectual arguments are not going to be enough to overcome spiritual blindness. It's not enough to be a learner of Scripture. You have to become a lover of Scripture. The Word of God cannot be understood with the limits of our human minds. God must open our eyes and then ignite our hearts. You say, well, what did... I really want Jesus to state. Now listen, this is another thing we have to understand. Just like these guys, there comes a moment in our lives when Jesus intersects with us. That's happening right now. This is an intersection with Jesus Christ and whatever your name is. And there is a point at which He will pass by you if you do not intentionally, urgently invite him to stay with you. In this moment, will you let Jesus pass by or will you invite him to come near so that you can see him and recognize him and worship him and love him. You say, I really want him to do. What do I pray? Try this verse, Psalm chapter 118, 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your, what? Law. Listen, if you're waiting for a dream, if you're waiting for a vision, here's a better plan. Grab a friend, grab a Bible, and see what God will do to open your eyes. And then notice this. Not only were their eyes opened, but their hearts began to burn. Verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Why do you think we begin every sermon around here with open your Bible? Because I want your heart to burn with passion for Jesus. Verse 33, and they rose that same hour. By the way, what hour was that? They, they already said, hey, Jesus, we can't go any further because it's getting dark. It's night outside. So he stays with him. He has dinner. Then he vanishes. Now, they rose in the middle of the night and they returned to Jerusalem. So, listen, it said they were probably six or seven miles into their journey to Emmaus. In the middle of the night, they did a U-turn and went back to Jerusalem. How far had they walked now this day? Like, I'm, I'm so tired. I just don't think I can give any more for Jesus. These guys, their hearts were burning and it energized their bodies. It says, and they found the eleven and those who were with him uh, with them, gathered together, underline the word gathered, part of our discipleship journey around here, glorify, gather, grow, go, that's our discipleship pathway, so we have to do it together, verse 34, and saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, remember the last time we saw Simon, what was he doing? Um, he was denying that he even knew Jesus, and then he had raced into the tomb. And sometime between then and now, Jesus had actually had a conversation with 
Peter, Simon Peter, verse 35, and they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. God's grace performed eye surgery and heart surgery on these guys. Do you remember what he said earlier about their hearts? Their hearts were what? Slow. Story opens up, they were slow of heart. Story ends, their hearts were on fire, burning with passion for Jesus. That's my desire for you. Maybe you came in here today slow of heart, sad because we had hoped that this virus would be over and the kids were going back to school and college football season would start. Listen, that's not where your hope needs to be. The Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. It makes your heart slow. But if your hope is on the risen Lord, your heart will burn within you. Christianity is not primarily a mental exercise. Christianity is primarily a matter of the heart. If your heart doesn't burn when you read the Bible, you're not doing it right. The human heart is like a fire pit. We have a fire pit on the patio of our, of our yard, and um, our teenagers love to gather other teenagers around the fire pit, and I watch what happens. And, and they always want me to start the fire. I'm just like, if I start this one, I'm going to have to start the next one. Some, at some point, they need to learn how to start a fire. In the fire pit. Nowhere else. Don't start fire anywhere else, but in the fire pit. So I will watch them. I was like, you have to get some kindling. You have to get some wood. There's a, there's a kindling and wood pit over here. You got to be in there. And you got to put, put some fuel on the fire. You got to spark it. You got to ignite it. Understand this. Your heart, my heart, is like that fire pit. The human heart is a fire pit where the kindling of Scripture is ignited by the spark of the Holy Spirit producing the flame of worship. It's not enough just to have the Bible in the fire pit. These guys had Bible. They had exposure to these things. But their hearts were cold. There was no worship there was no flame. It is not until the spark of the Holy Spirit ignites the fuel of God's word in the human heart that it creates an inferno of worship. How's your heart this morning? If we hooked up a spiritual EKG to your spiritual heart, will we find it cold or would we find it burning with passion? Do you understand when you have a blazing heart for Jesus? There is a joy in your heart that burns away despair. When you have a heart that burns within you for Jesus, there's a love that burns away bitterness. There's a hope that burns away anxiety. There's a peace that burns away fear. There's a passion for the lost that burns away indifference. Last verse says, they told what had happened on the road. Question, who are you walking with? What are you talking about? And who have you told about what happened 
on your road as it intersected with Jesus? Is your heart burning for God to be glorified? First of all in here, then in here, then out there. How? Are, are you allowing your heart to be fueled by God's word? I want to invite you to stand with me right now. Bow your heads, close your eyes. And before we rush out of here into a world that's going to try to make you think that the things that we've talked about in here are really unbelievable, can we just drive a nail that these things are undeniably true? When our hearts burn with passion for Jesus, let's bow our heads, close your eyes. You're going to need a heart that burns this morning. Because out there, your mind is going to be filled with things that are going to try to extinguish that flame of worship. Would you ask God right now to ignite by His Spirit the Word that has saturated our hearts today? Apart from God's grace, our minds can't understand these things. Ask God to open your eyes. Father, we want to thank you for sending Jesus, coming to intersect with us. Thank you for godly friends who have walked with us who've talked with us and created a safe space for us to get real about where we are with you. And Lord, I, I pray that we would never trivialize your word. The stories in the Old Testament, they're all there to show us that you are a king who has a kingdom, that you've created us for your glory and yet we've fallen and yet through your cross and resurrection, there is a redemption that's brought us hope that we will be recreated for the world that we've never known. All for your glory. God, convince us of those truths. And I pray for many here today, their eyes maybe today for the first time have been opened by your grace. God, would you draw them closer to your heart? Would you give them courage to tell what has happened on that road? I pray, God, that our church would be known as a place where we burn with worship, where the things that we talk about are things that matter most, that transcend so many of the, the heartaches, the, the sadness that we see in our culture. God, I pray that you give us a humility that would step out of our isolation allow others to, to love us, to even confront us. God, make us tender to your words. Change us, transform us. Open the eyes of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name.